Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. And now begins our text, verses 5 through 10. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We read the Holy Scriptures that far. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the purpose of our worship service tonight and the purpose of the sermon is that we might see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That's our purpose tonight. 
Our purpose is that we might see Jesus ascending up into heaven in that cloud of glory, ascending up high above this earth and the heaven above it, high up into the highest heaven, what the scriptures call the third heaven, before the watching eyes of his disciples who stood on the Mount of Olives. That's why we have gathered together tonight to commemorate that great event. Or to use the words of the book of Hebrews, our purpose tonight is to commemorate and to see Jesus as he went up to sit down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, having obtained by inheritance a more excellent name than they, as the apostle writes in chapter 1. And as he goes on to ask, For unto which of the angels did God ever say, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And unto which of the angels did God ever say, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. God never said those things to the angels, but he did say those things to Jesus. And so we come here tonight to mark that event, to remember that event, to give thanks, to hear the preaching of that event from the scriptures, and to worship the King of Kings. The apostle who wrote this epistle to the Hebrews goes on in chapter 2 to make this exhortation a very serious one. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and then was confirmed by the apostles, and God also bore witness to it through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. And now we get into our text here in verse 5. But one in a certain place testified, and there he speaks of David the psalmist, who testified in Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? In Psalm 8, a beautiful psalm which maybe you could read tonight for your devotions before bed. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, David writes. And David goes on to reflect upon God's work of creation, of man in the beginning, making him a little lower than the angels, but crowning him with glory and honor. David is reflecting in Psalm 8, on God's creative work of man in the beginning. But whether David knew it or not, the Holy Spirit at the same time was inspiring him to prophesy about the Son of Man who was going to come. He was prophesying in that same psalm 
looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And he spoke about Christ, according to our text, when David wrote that he was made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. And the apostle is going to demonstrate to us in our text that David was indeed not only speaking of Adam and Eve in the beginning, not only speaking of man in the present, but he was speaking about Christ, speaking about his state of humiliation and dissension, and also his state of exaltation and ascension, that he would be made a little lower than the angels, crowned then with glory and honor. Let's consider the text then, taking as our theme, Jesus crowned with dominion. First of all, we notice that he was made a little lower than the angels. Secondly, he was crowned with glory and honor. And thirdly, he became Lord over the world to come. If you read chapter 1 of the epistle and then you continue reading into chapter 2, one thing is going to stand out to you right away. There's a lot of reference to the angels. And the reason is that in the time of the apostles, the angels were held in very high regard by the Hebrews. And the Hebrews were simply the Jews. The Jews held the angels in very high regard. And no wonder, because the angels were mighty creatures. They were powerful. They were glorious. They were beautiful. Heavenly messengers of God, servants of God, soldiers of Jehovah of hosts, who did battle against the devil and all of his hosts throughout the ages of history, and who brought messages from God to his people on the earth. And so the apostle is speaking here of the angels. The Hebrews held the word spoken by angels to be steadfast. Notice that in verse 2. The Hebrews considered that if an angel said it, it must be true. If an angel came from heaven and spoke a message, as they did many times to Abraham, Jacob, to Gideon, to Samson's parents, to Daniel, and to many others. That word must be steadfast. That word must be sure, firm, immovable, because it came from angels, and therefore it came from heaven. But the problem that lies in the background of the book of Hebrews is that many of the Jews did not believe the word spoken by Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus spoke the words of salvation, but they did not believe him. They rejected him. But what is of more importance for this epistle is that the Hebrew Christians, the Jews who were Christians, were also starting to doubt the words of Jesus. And the reason all of these Jews were filled with such doubt was because when Jesus came, he tasted death to use the words of our text. He suffered death. He died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Now all of these Jews, or many of these Jews, were expecting that when Christ comes, 
When the Messiah finally comes, then we will see the ascension of God. We will see the exaltation of Christ. But what they thought that would be is that Christ would ascend to a physical throne in the city of Jerusalem. That Christ would liberate them from their Roman enemies. That Christ would overcome all of their enemies and establish a worldly kingdom on earth full of prosperity, wealth, fame, just like in the glory days of King David and Solomon. But when Jesus came, he suffered and died on a cross. And so they stumbled over the cross of Jesus. And now the apostle comes writing to these Hebrews. This whole epistle has as its purpose to make steadfast in their minds the words of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is far superior to Moses, to the angels, to Melchizedek, to Aaron, to all of the fathers, and to all of the angels. That's the message of Hebrews. The apostle goes about that, referring in many, many different places throughout this epistle to the Old Testament, also in our text. In our text, in verse 6, he says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, and all of his readers knew he was referring to Psalm 8. A beautiful psalm written by King David, hundreds of years before. And the apostle is going to argue in our text that Psalm 8, in Psalm 8, David was not only speaking of Adam and Eve, but he was also speaking of Christ who was to come. Now, that was not necessarily obvious in the psalm. The psalm appears to be just a meditation or a reflection on God's creation of Adam and Eve in the beginning. But the apostle is going to argue, no, not just that. But the psalm was a messianic prophecy. And this will be his proof. Notice, in that psalm, David writes that God made man a little lower than the angels. That's true. God made Adam and Eve a little lower than the angels. Think of those angels. They're glorious, they're mighty, they're heavenly creatures. They live in heaven. Adam and Eve lived on the earth. The angels up in heaven were immortal. They were unable to die and they were unable to sin. I'm referring to the holy and the elect angels. But Adam and Eve, although they were created perfect, they were mortal. They were able to sin. They were able to die. They were created a little lower than the angels but they were crowned with glory and honor because God made Adam and Eve in his own image, his own likeness, and he gave them dominion over the whole creation. He didn't give that to the angels. He gave to Adam and Eve dominion over the beasts of the field, the cattle, the creeping things, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. He gave them dominion over the whole vast creation. But man fell into sin. And man became the slaves of Satan. 
Man plunged into the darkness of sin and death. And although man continued to attempt to have dominion over the creation, the apostle writes here in our text, Now we see not yet all things put under him. Notice the argument of the apostle in the text. Psalm 8 says that God made man a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of his hands. God has put all things in subjection under his feet, and in that he put all in subjection under his feet, he left nothing that is not put under him. Nothing. Nothing is not put under man's feet. Everything is put under man's feet. But what do we see? We see not yet all things put under him. We don't yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. That's what we see. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. That's what we see. So the apostle is arguing, you see, the psalm was speaking of Christ. It cannot be speaking of Adam and Eve. It cannot be speaking of mankind today, because all things are not put under his feet. It must be speaking of Christ, who was to come. And what do we see? We see Jesus. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Now the Jews stumbled over that. They stumbled over his suffering and death on the cross. But the apostle is saying, now wait a minute. That is exactly why Christ came. For the suffering of death. To taste death as the captain of our salvation. The psalm teaches us that Christ would come and he would be made a little lower than the angels. Now think of how much lower than the angels man has become when man fell into sin. Man was lower than the angels at the beginning, but when he fell into sin, he plunged even lower. Now man is a sinner. Now man is a totally wretched, corrupt sinner. But the angels are holy, glorious, and perfect. Now man has plunged himself into mortality and death, suffering, pain, sorrow. But the angels dwell in perfect bliss in the glory of God. Now Christ, when he comes will be made a little lower than the angels, the apostle says. Yes, because Christ is God. And God is the creator of the angels. Christ, before the incarnation, was so much greater than the angels. Because Christ is God. And God made the angels in the beginning. He is infinitely exalted, infinitely higher than the angels, but he had to become a little bit lower than the angels. He had to become a man, and not just a man, but a mortal man, a weakened man, a fallen man, a man under suffering and death. He came for the suffering of death. He came that by the grace of God he should taste death, For every man. Christ 
lowered himself from his heavenly glory and splendor. He descended first. He must first lower himself beneath the angels down to the low, despicable level of man. He must be born of a virgin and laid in a manger in Bethlehem, despised, rejected, no one caring about him. He must be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He must experience the shame and the contradiction of sinners. And finally, he must experience the suffering of death. He must be nailed to a cross. He must come under the curse and the wrath of God. And he must taste death. Why must he taste death? Because he came into this world in order to bring many sons to glory, the apostle says. He's the captain of our salvation, the the apostle says. As our captain, he came. He lowered himself. As a good captain, a good general, a good leader in the army, he plunged himself right into the heat of the battle, into the hottest part. He laid down his life in order to bring many sons to glory. He tasted death for those who were worthy of death because they deserved death, because we deserved death for our sins. That's why he came, the apostle says. Don't stumble over the cross. The cross, that's why he came. He became a little lower than the angels. He became lower than the angels for a little while. For the suffering of death on a cross. To take that bitter taste of death into his mouth. Not just the bitter taste of physical death but the bitter taste of eternal death in hell under the wrath and judgment of God so that we would never have to taste that death. He lowered himself all the way down to our level to taste death as the captain of our salvation, to reveal the grace of God. That's what the apostle writes in verse 9. He lowered himself that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. By the grace of God. That's why he tasted death for us. It was the grace of God at work. We being poor, miserable, wretched, lost sinners, unable to save ourselves, God was gracious to us. Christ was gracious to us, and he revealed the infinite grace of God, the amazing grace, the sweet sound to taste death for every man. Verse 9. To taste death for every man. Now we understand that does not mean every single man. We come to the text and we read that he tasted death for every man. And we want to know what does that mean because we know that there are many people who say that Jesus became a little lower than the angels to taste death for every single man and every single woman 
and to bring all of them into glory. How are we to understand the text? Well, we must put ourselves into the shoes of the apostle in the first century, writing this epistle to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, who tended to be very narrow-minded, who tended to think that God was their God, but not the God of the Gentiles. And the apostle here insists, as elsewhere, no, Christ came to taste death for every man, every man. Not just the Jewish man, but also the Greek man and the Roman man. Yes, those Roman men whom you hate so much. Those Roman men who have dominion over you. He came to taste death for those Romans, those Greeks, those barbarians, those Scythians, for those black men and those white men and those brown men, for every man. That's why he came. but not for every single man. Because the Apostle says in verse 10 that he came to bring many sons unto glory. He is the captain of their salvation. He is the captain of a vast army that is gathered out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. He tasted death for every single one of those whom God gave to him out of the nations. And he did that to bring them onto glory. He came down to bring us up. He came down into our miserable world to bring us up into his glorious world. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And crowned with glory and honor. When David wrote Psalm 8, as I said already, he was first of all meditating on what God did in the beginning. God made man a little bit lower than the angels. But he crowned him with glory and honor at the same time. Adam and Eve were beneath the angels, but they were over all of the animals. God gave them dominion over all the creatures of the earth to rule as king and queen. But they fell into sin. They cast away their crowns. They wanted to be slaves instead, slaves to the prince of darkness. And ever since the fall, up to the days of the apostle, the apostle reflects on all of those days. And he says, we do not yet see all things put under him, verse 8. Psalm 8 says that God has put all things under subjection to his feet. God has crowned man with glory and honor and given him dominion over the whole universe. But we don't see that. Now we see not yet all things put under him. What do we see? What do we experience? 
we see that man today, man and woman, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, struggle and strive with all of their might to keep the creation under their control, to keep hold of some kind of dominion over the animals, to somehow tame the forces of nature. But man is unable to do so. All we have to do is look around us in the past couple of years, and even in the past couple of weeks, all we have to do is pay a little bit of attention to the news, and we can see that. Man struggles and strives when suddenly a little virus breaks forth and spreads from nation to nation to nation, infecting millions and millions of people. Man struggles and strives to keep that virus under his control, under his dominion, but he is unable really to do that. Storms, rage, man cannot control them. The storms rush over Lake Huron. The clouds, the thunder, and the lightning. The rain pours down to the earth. Winds stir up the ground, destroying houses and buildings and roads and power lines. And man is not able to keep it under subjection to his feet. Just this past week, a young man entered into a school in Texas with a gun, shot and killed 19 little children. And the governments debate, they fight, they struggle against each other, they think of solutions, but they have no solutions. They cannot keep these killers under subjection and under their dominion. They are unable to do that. We have seen another war break out in Europe, in Ukraine. Russia, that powerful ancient nation, building up its forces over time and finally invading a sovereign nation. And the nations of the world stand and watch and wring their hands and there's nothing they can do. They can't keep man under control. They are unable We do not yet see, the Apostle says, all things put under him. I recently also heard an unbelieving scientist speaking about the future, the destiny of the earth, speaking in great terror. And he said this, that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when some giant asteroid 50 miles wide or greater, is going to hurtle towards the earth again, just as they think it happened before in the past, and smash into the earth. And they describe what's going to happen if that asteroid smashes into the oceans. Tidal waves of catastrophic nature are going to destroy all of humanity. And they live in terror because they know They don't have all these things in subjection under their feet. They don't have dominion. They believe that we live in the midst of a world, a wild, untamed world in which anything can happen, in which mankind can be eliminated and extinct in an instant. And they know they have no control. 
We do not yet see all things but under his feet. Certainly we don't. What do we see? They don't see it. But what do we see? What do you see? Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. That's what we see. We don't see that with these eyes. And that shouldn't be any surprise to us. The Lord Jesus said in John 16, verse 16, before he even died, he said to his disciples, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Because I go to the Father. We don't see him with these eyes. We see him with these eyes. We see him with the eyes of our heart. We see him with the eyes of our soul, the eyes of faith, eyes that we don't have by nature, but eyes that God gave to us because he loves us. We see Jesus. Where do we see him? How do we see him? When do we see him? We see Jesus when the drama of salvation is portrayed before our eyes in the preaching of the gospel. When the story of salvation is open and expounded to us from the scriptures, proclaimed to us in the preaching, that's when we see him. We see him. When the scriptures are brought to life, we see him, as it were, with the eyes of our soul. We can see him there. We see him going up in the front of the eyes of his disciples, going up there in the cloud, up, 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 with his arms outstretched towards his disciples, blessing them. We see him there. There he goes. There he goes. Up in the cloud. Up, 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 higher and higher. We see him with our eyes of faith, transcendent, far surpassing all of this creation, going up far above the clouds, far above the stars, far above the galaxies and the farthest reaches of space into that highest heaven, entering into his glory, sitting down there at the right hand of the majesty on high, sitting down there at the right hand of his Father in heaven, crowned with glory and honor. Do you see that? Is that what you see? I see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. I see his crown so much better than the crown that God gave to Adam and Eve. A crown which they threw away. I see his crown. Do you see it? It's a victory wreath wrapped around his head. He sits at the right hand of God and he wears that victory wreath. 
Because he is the victor. He is the conqueror. He was victorious. He accomplished what he came to do on this earth. And so there he is, crowned with that victory wreath. That wreath which symbolizes his victory over all of our sins. His victory over death and hell and Satan and all of his demons in the world. There he is. Do you see him? Do you see him sitting there at the right hand of God, crowned with glory and honor as the King of kings and Lord of lords, given a name above every name? That's what I see. Do you see the angels? The angels that he created? The angels that he made himself lower than for a little while? Do you see those angels? Do you see those angels that now he has exalted up high above them, sitting at God's right hand? Do you see them? Thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, surrounding the throne of God, bowing down with all the saints, crying out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and glory and power and blessing and honor. That's what I see. The 24 elders casting down their crowns before him. All of creation bowing the knee to him. Because it became him, the apostle says. Verse 10, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Oh, Hebrews, don't stumble at the cross. It became him by whom and for whom are all things to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Don't stumble over the cross. God determined that through the sufferings of the cross, in that way, he would reveal the magnitude of his grace and then, and then make him perfect. It became him to do that. Think of how unbecoming it would be of God if he left Jesus there in the grave. How unbecoming. Because God is just. And Jesus finished all that he came to do on the cross. How unbecoming would God be to leave his son there in the grave. But God is not unbecoming. God does everything that he does in perfect harmony with his own nature. God is just. Therefore, he raised him up and carried him up and crowned him with glory and honor, and made him perfect. Perfect. Through sufferings. So what hope we have as those who see him in the midst of this fallen, broken world? What hope? The apostle begins the text with these words. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. 
the world to come. Why is he speaking of the world to come? Isn't David speaking about this world? Isn't David talking about the world that once was? That Adam and Eve were king and queen over that world? But now, as he begins to talk about the true meaning of Psalm 8, he says, Not to the angels did he put in subjection the world to come. Well, then to whom? To man? No. To Jesus. To Jesus he has put in subjection the world to come. That's our hope. Crowned with glory and honor, surrounded by the hosts of heaven, wearing his victory wreath, he has been given all authority and all power and all dominion over heaven and earth. This world. Because he is going to create the world to come out of this world. That's what he is now doing. He was crowned with dominion. He was given dominion over the whole universe to bring to pass the world to come. Man in this present time tries to bring about a future world. Everywhere we look, everywhere we listen, man struggles and strives and endeavors to overcome these viruses, these shootings, these wars, these pandemics, these storms, to no avail. And yet he continues and endeavors and strives to subject this world to himself because man has a dream. And man's dream is to create the world to come here in this world. That was the dream of the Jews, too. They were looking for a Messiah who would ascend to the throne in Jerusalem and rule over this world. And that's what man is still trying to do. Utopia. A perfect world in which we solve all of our problems. We overcome all of the ills of humanity, whatever it takes. Maybe that even means that human civilization, they're saying nowadays, has to escape from this world and travel to other planets and inhabit those planets around other stars so that the human race can survive. We smile at that. That's what they're saying. That's their hope. That's their dream. They believe this world is going to be destroyed. They know that. They feel it in their bones. We need to escape from this planet. We need to escape to other worlds. We need to survive. That's a vain hope. We have a sure hope. We see Jesus. Jesus. With dominion over this whole universe. And he says, I come quickly to create that world to come. He says, you see all those troubles around you? Those are the signs. Those are my footsteps. That means I'm coming. 
I'm coming for you. Because I'm bringing many sons into glory. Many sons, many daughters. All those for whom I tasted the death of the cross. I'm bringing all of you to glory. Into that world that is yet to come. The everlasting world. In that world, we will see Jesus, but not by faith. We will see Jesus face to face in the world to come. This glorious, exalted, crowned Lord, we're going to see him face to face in the world to come. That's an everlasting world. That's a world in which there will be perfect peace and harmony. What man vainly attempts to accomplish by his own efforts here below, Christ will accomplish by his power. But it will be so much better than what man dreams for. Because it will be a world of perfect righteousness. You know, the world that man dreams for, some semblance of it will come to pass in the last days when the beast rises out of the sea. But it will only last for a time and times and half a time and then perish. But the world to come that Christ will create will be everlasting and there will be righteousness there. Not a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of light. No more sin. No more sorrow. No more death. No more crying. The former things will be passed away. And 10,000 times 10,000 angels and saints as many as the stars of heaven will gather and rejoice and look at the face of Jesus and see the face of God and dwell with him forever and ever. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed, don't you think? Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Oh, how easily we let them slip. But if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, which was first preached by our Lord himself and then preached by his apostles and confirmed by God through many signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, how shall we escape? If we neglect, if we reject, if we ignore, if we despise such a great salvation, There is no escape. Therefore, let's give the more earnest heed. That's the message of Hebrews. These Hebrews were starting to doubt. They were starting to slip. No, Paul says, let us give the more earnest heed. Hold fast to Christ. Put your hope in Christ. Look forward to his coming. Behold, he comes quickly. Amen. Father in heaven, we give thee thanks for the gospel.
of our Savior Jesus Christ. What a glorious, marvelous gospel. We confess that so often we do not marvel at it as we ought. Fill our hearts tonight with the wonder of the ascension of our Savior, of his being crowned with glory and honor, and grant, Father, that we might be filled with hope as we struggle with our own afflictions and trials, our own sins, as we struggle in the midst of a world of temptation, of philosophies of men, grant unto us to be steadfast, unshakable, unmovable, holding fast to our exalted Lord,